Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Aaron Moore is a patient advocate with years of experience helping to redesign healthcare to better respond to patient need. It is hard, painstaking work. In this podcast, she shares her experience of what that journey has been like for her and how we can make it that much easier for patients to be more involved in their healthcare. Here to tell her story is Erin Moore. Erin, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted to have your company on the Health Design Podcast. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to start our conversation to hear the story of how you became a patient advocate. About 13 and a half years ago, I had twins and one of them was diagnosed at birth with cystic fibrosis, which is a progressive and fatal genetic disease that doesn't have a cure. I first got involved with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation locally. We had lived in Cincinnati at the time and I got involved with fundraising and advocacy. I became the state advocacy chair in Ohio. And then I started working with our care team at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I was offering my opinion and bringing ideas to the table as part of our patient advisory group. And what I quickly realized is that they were trying to solve the problems that they thought we had, but they weren't actually the things that we were struggling with on a day-to-day basis. And so I wanted to do something more than that. It was through that process that I learned about the learning health system model that Cincinnati Children's really was pioneering in inflammatory bowel disease with Improved Care Now. And I wanted the same thing for the CF community. We had done such tremendous work over the past, I don't even know how many years, we were the first organization that had any registry for patients and and information about patients. And yet there's still this huge disparity in care and outcomes between centers. And I just thought there has got to be a better way to do this. So I spearheaded the effort to start a cystic fibrosis learning network out of Cincinnati Children's in partnership with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And it was from there that things kind of started to snowball. And I took on all of these different roles and responsibilities working in true partnership, I think, with our care team. For many patient patient advocates beginning their journey in an alliance with healthcare, there is the impression that it's a box-ticking exercise. In other words, somebody in management has decided to bring a patient advocate or patient on board because it looks good in the final report to say, oh, and we consulted with X buddy. And often, as you say, it's about solving the problems that they think you have as opposed to the problems that you actually had. Can we drill down on this a little bit more to understand what that is like, what that experience feels like from your end? When I first started working with our team at Cincinnati, I was a volunteer. I just signed up and was going in and volunteering my time and energy to participate in some of these activities. And at that time, when I was doing that work, I had an 18-month-old and these newborn twins my son who was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as a twin. And after a while, my childcare expenses were getting a little bit too high. So I asked if they would cover my babysitting expenses. 
And they agreed to do that if I had a contract. And once I had a contract, I needed a badge. And when I went to the badging office, I needed a title. And so I told them that I was a family partner. And it wasn't a job title that existed. It wasn't a role that had had previously been in play. But they agreed to do that. And they quickly realized how much time I was spending working with them once they began to pay me to participate. But there was a big difference that happened at that point in time, too. There was a different level of expectations. There was a different level of accountability that came once I had a badge and a name tag. And it definitely caused some tensions. It was an incredible learning experience. But I was like an icebreaker ship, just kind of forging ahead and every day just ramming into the same problems that I had been stuck behind before, trying to forge this path to true partnership. Because I wasn't interested in going to their meeting, having them present the challenges that, that existed in their workplace. I saw them very much as problems and challenges that they might need to overcome. I wanted to solve the problems that the patients and the families were experiencing. But I realized we didn't have a shared definition of what a family partner was or what they might do. I did not want to be on an advisory board. I did not want to be a checkbox. I am hard to contain (laughs) within a box. I think I have some pretty big outside of the box thinking oftentimes. And I am grateful that Cincinnati was able to embrace a lot of that thinking and say, you know what, this is innovative. Let's think about how we could utilize your ideas and your skills, not just to solve the problems, but to identify the problems together and then co-create solutions that have the potential to improve care and outcomes. So it really was through that process that, that we started to move away from just being an advisor, somebody who is in that checkbox kind of position, to somebody who is really acting as a partner on the care team, not just bringing the lived expertise that I have, but combining it with my own learned expertise. So this sweet spot in the middle between lived and learned expertise created a really unique role and an opportunity for us to learn how we could work together in new and different ways. I want to understand this a little bit more because the power differential was quite marked. You had the paymaster who had their ideas and presumably there have been managers who had their KPIs and all the rest of it. And then they had you, you had your ideas and clearly wanted to make a difference. The power differential would have been a major stumbling block and you've overcome that. How did you do that? Not easily is the answer. (laughs) It was incredibly challenging. I tried to use a lot of my training and my experience in relationship building, human-centered design to partner with these teams and, and take them to trainings and innovation events. I tried to walk in their shoes to understand what some of the challenges might be that that they were facing or the resistance that they might have to patients in the patient community. Because I saw us very much as a service relationship, not as a product relationship. They're not a product. I can't go to the doctor or the hospital and get health. 
It's not a product, right? And there's no other, I, I very much positioned it as a service. And I thought, you know, there's not any other service where we wouldn't work collaboratively with one another to determine what the outcome is that we want. When I go to get my oil changed, they ask me what kind of oil I'd like. They ask me if I'd like a new filter. <laughs> I get to decide in that relationship. When I go to get a haircut, I don't just sit down in the chair and hope for the best. We have a conversation about what it is that I want done and what they're capable of doing or what their experience adds to the picture so that we can co-create the outcome that we want to see together. This was tricky. It was it was tricky. It was it was a tough relationship to get started because it feels like a very vulnerable one. So as you mentioned, there's a huge power differential and with a disease, a complex chronic disease like cystic fibrosis, I have an entire care team of highly highly specialized, incredibly well-trained physicians caring for my son and our family on a daily basis. I did not want to upset the apple cart, if you will. <laughs> and at the same time, I really felt like I needed to advocate not just what was for best for my son, but what was best for the CF community at large. Because I wasn't trying to win a battle. I'm trying to really win the war and say, there's a huge opportunity here. We have this wealth of experience that you don't always see, that you can't always understand unless you're walking in our shoes. And I appreciate all that you have learned in school and your training, and also from partnering with these patients for however many years, you've also learned something. That expertise has to be complementary, though. We can't be competing with each other if we're going to have a successful, productive relationship and achieve the outcomes that we both want. So it was really a lot of work. I had to put on a professional cap and know when I was sitting in the patient with my son as a patient and take off the professional cap. And when I was sitting in the office with the rest of the care team and put on my professional cap and say, I know this is a hard conversation, but this is what I'm trying to achieve. I think we're both going for the same thing here. What are some compromises that we can make? What kind of things can we put into place to help us both achieve these goals, even though we're seeing it from very, very different perspectives. There's something to that, that intersection of those perspectives. There lives this unique opportunity to really innovate, I think, in a way that hasn't been done well in the past. And we're working towards something really incredible. I'd say over the past 10 years, that has changed dramatically for the better. Still a lot of work to do, but we're, we're getting there. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. I get that it is a service and it is not like buying a product. It's not like going and saying, have a nice day and being handed your meal. When I think about the providers that I know, there are four things that are front and center of mind whatever the issue happens to be. They're worried about their workload. They're worried about administration. They're worried about the resources. And they're worried about their staffing. Everything else is a nice to have in their mind because as long as they're continuing to 
churn the patients through just like they would in any other service, they're quite happy. How do you make them see that the other thing they need to be thinking about is the quality of that service? How do you add that cue into the wars? I think that rather than just think about the outcomes that we're trying to improve related to health, really starting to to look at healthcare as a complex system and utilizing quality improvement tools, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, really utilizing those quality improvement tools can help everybody to see the opportunity for better in all of those different areas that you mentioned. If there was better patient outcomes, if we can create a more reliable system, if we can reduce the unintended variation in care and outcomes, then there will be less administrative paperwork to do. Then the physicians can find efficiencies in their workload. We don't want to create something that is just very easily replicable. But at the same time, there is an opportunity to say, let's take the 90% and see how much of that we can replicate and then personalize or customize that other 10% to really improve the quality overall and bring back the joy, the purpose that so many of these physicians have and had when they joined medicine to take care of patients. They're losing that. Like when you said there's four things that they're focused on, patients weren't on that list. <laughs> they don't have the capacity to do that. How do we get that back? How do we move back to patient-centered care by sharing some of that responsibility to alleviate the burden on everybody? I think that's an opportunity. It occurs to me, Erin, that there was somebody else in the mix here. There must have been individuals on the other side of the fence who could see things from your perspective and were willing to work with you. Who were those people and how did you identify them? After I found out about the learning health system model at Cincinnati Children's, I started to go in search of the people that, that were running these to say, what, what is it? How did we get here? <laughs> I started to do a little bit of research of my own and, and I did find a champion. He's a social scientist who was running these networks. And he also happened to be the parent of a child with inflammatory bowel disease. So it was somebody within the system who opened that door for me and championed that path forward. Somebody who was able to say, yes, let's try it. Yes, she can be on my team. I don't know. Let's ask. Let's figure it out together. I have been in other situations where I haven't had that person. And to me, that is so disappointing because of the opportunity that I see in so many other patients and patient activists and advocates wanting to to work in these roles. I did work in a number of different capacities on, on a number of different advisory panels. And it wasn't until I started saying, this isn't enough. This isn't enough. We're not doing enough. This isn't good enough. That somebody was like, aha, <laughs> like I see what it is that you're doing. 
And there's a cliche, you may have heard the cliche about traffic. You're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. I embrace that so wholeheartedly. I thought, I am so frustrated and overwhelmed by this system. What is my role to play in making this better? I'm not in the system. I am the system. I'm part of the system. I'm the patient in the system. I'm the caregiver in this system. What is it that I need to do to be better at this? It wasn't until then that I really realized that healthcare wasn't serving me. It wasn't, it's not proactive. It's not going to come to me and help my kid. I really need to take this active stance and step in and express my concerns and express my wishes and desires about my son's health, share my information. Sadly, there's often not a receptacle for that. When the patients show up with their binder full of information, right? The doctor has their 15 minutes to get through everything they need to. And the patient shows up with this big book of information. So it's not until you find somebody that is willing to listen to you I think if there's one thing that I could change about healthcare, it would be that we remove that serendipity of finding that person, of increasing your chance at a good health outcome. I think that we can do that by design. I want to really understand what happened when the rubber hit the road. So you're right. It's a 15-minute consultation. And there are lots of things that you have to achieve as a clinician in that time. And you've got an advocate who has a number of issues that they want addressed, or a parent, or even a patient who says, look, I have a number of things and I, I really need you to focus on these. They're thinking workload, administration, resources and staffing. They're thinking all of this at the back of their mind. And on top of all of this, we now know that there are really worrying rates of burnout in healthcare. So you've got people who may not be favorably predisposed to service, even though that's the the job that they're doing. So let's call it out. You use the word frustration. That is the word that worries me the most because there is a potential for massive frustration when these two go head to head. The patient who wants care and the healthcare professional who's trying to protect their patch. How do we start to unpack that? How did you do it? Because you did it and you managed to get people on board. How did you do it? It was not easy. (laughs) It was not easy to do. There were a lot of drives home from work in tears, frustrated about how things were going. A lot of fear and concern that the quality of care I would receive might change based on how I show up professionally in my work. And I persisted. I found people to talk to. I found other champions and advocates for how it was going. And most importantly, I worked with the people who wanted to work with me. I tried not to swim upstream. (laughs) I tried my very, very best to go with the flow and look for opportunities to not just get what I want, but make sure that they were getting what they needed out of it also. So an example of that might be pre-visit planning for an appointment. The way that it had been done originally is when you would go into clinic and the doctor would say, you know, how are you? What is, what, what brings you here today? 
And I would say, well, you do because you told us to come quarterly. So here we are and there's nothing going on and that's the way that it is. And then they run through this whole list of things and I have no idea how my life is going to change in this very appointment. He might get admitted to the hospital. His lung function might've dropped without us knowing it. It's truly a life-changing visit every time you would go. And it didn't feel good. It didn't feel good to anybody. I'm fortunate to have a support system and an education and be able to manage some of those expectations with the resources that are available to me. But I knew that not everybody had that. And how are we going to address this or deal with this? So I learned that there was another network, not the Cystic Fibrosis Network, but another network that had been doing pre-visit planning by asking patients ahead of time what their priorities for the upcoming visit looked like. And not every patient would answer this survey, but if we gave them the chance to say what it is that they wanted to talk about, maybe we could create some efficiency in the visit by having the providers discuss this ahead of time. Well, we were sending these pre-visit surveys out and we were getting some responses, but one of the challenges that we had was that they weren't lining up with when the clinicians were having their weekly check-in to discuss their caseloads. And so we decided to change it. And we said, how about if we do this Friday before your appointment so that everybody's stuff has to come in and then you can discuss it on Monday when you have your regular upcoming, your, your weekly meeting with the team and see how patients are doing and make sure that everything gets covered that the patient wants to have covered. We did have to compromise a bit also. There's compromise is a big part of it. I think it's easy when you're the patient to make a lot of demands. It's my life. It's my kid's life. It doesn't matter to me what you want, but it does. At the end of the day, we have to be partners in this if we want it to be successful. So the team would respond back to us after we would send in this survey and they would say, okay, we heard that you want to meet with this team member or these are the three topics you wanted to discuss. And we also felt like it would be valuable if you met with this person and this person so that it wasn't a surprise when we came into clinic. Now, I have more peace of mind going into the visit, having some idea of what's going to happen generally. The care team has made me aware of their plan. So neither one of us is going to knock each other completely off of their feet when you walk in the door, like could happen before. The care team's spending all of this time planning my visit for me. And if I come in and I say, I don't want to talk about any of that, the biggest problem that I have right now is insert anything. If they don't know about that ahead of time, then they're as ill-prepared to help me as I am to answer their questions and perform their tests and whatever it is that they want going on, because I feel like I've been blindsided also. So it is a lot of relationship building in that way, in really, really simple ways. I'm doing something similar now with my son's care team. We're down in Baltimore now. And my son's care team now, when we're not doing it electronically, but when we come into clinic, they have tools in place to say, what are your priorities for today? What do you want to talk about? What's on your list? Because one thing that we were getting caught up with at that clinic was as the clinicians were about to leave the room, the patient said, oh, one more thing. And, <laughs> that's tricky, <laughs> right? The, the appointment is over. The, the clinician's on their way out the door and the patient just drops this huge bomb on them. How can we 
minimize that. You're not going to eliminate, I'm not trying to be absolute in all or nothing, any of this stuff, but how do we really try to make it more reasonable for both of us? And it's often really basic communication techniques that are helping us to get to new places that we hadn't been to before. We just forget to use them. The tools that we have from, from grade school, we just need to pull them back out of our toolbox and start using them with one another so that we can be as productive as we possibly can in the time that we have together, which is always too short. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. If I'm a patient advocate and I'm thinking about this kind of work, and I'm thinking in particular about instigating the thing that you've done so successfully, which is to have the pre-visit properly planned so that people are ready to answer the questions that matter to you and, and you're ready to hear their perspective as well. That's, that was a key thing. However, the idea of going home in tears, the, the idea of having fear of repercussions for making all this noise is a very real one, particularly where there is this power differential. And I want to understand a little bit more about the support that you received through that. Who were the people that you turned to and how did you allay your own anxiety, which often might have overturned all of your efforts because you would have panicked and maybe done something that wasn't particularly positive or productive? It wasn't always clear or easy who my support staff was and whether I was winning or losing until I realized that I wasn't fighting. But in that process, it was really that very first champion who recognized that the hours that I keep and the hours that I was working were not a traditional nine to five. I had these little kids. I had breathing treatments. I had medications. I had appointments. I had all of this stuff going on. And so if I was available at 10 p.m., he would take my call at 10 p.m., if I was available to come in and talk at lunch, he was available to come and talk at lunch. I really tried to set up systems, even with other patient advocates outside of the disease area where I was working, to learn how they were overcoming some of these challenges because patient activists, I will call us, are often resisted. And I would try to remind folks that you empowered me to do this. You liked the opinion that I had when I was on the advisory committee. You asked me if I would join the team to contribute further to your quality improvement efforts. You trained me in quality improvement. You gave me a badge and a title. And then as soon as I started to have my own ideas and opinions, I start to get resisted. Now it feels threatening. It doesn't feel complimentary anymore. And that's what we need to change. I don't want to be the doctor. <laughs> if I wanted to be the doctor, I would have gone to medical school. I don't want to be the doctor. I want to be the mom. I want to tell you what it's like to live with this day and night. I want to tell you about the fear and the concern that I have 
and whether I need to make that phone call at two in the morning or go back to bed and it can wait. Some of the fears and concerns are so irrational. They, they really are irrational, but things like if I mention this to, social, to the social worker, will my kids get taken away from me? I've never had that experience. I've never had that fear, but I've worked with people who have. It is real and it is legitimate. When I'm not compliant or when we are not adherent to coming to appointments or doing whatever, the functions of my daily life had such a direct impact on the conditions of my employment <laughs> because I was employed specifically as a patient advocate. That was my job. And the experience that I was bringing was that real life. This is not working. I understand why you're doing it that way, but I am telling you that it is not working for me and it is not working for others. And if it is this hard for a middle-class educated white woman to get the care and the quality that I think I deserve, then it is impossible for anybody else. That keeps me awake at night. I have seen so many patient advocates find a new care team because they felt like they were being targeted or being resisted by them too strongly. I have had the experience where another person that was working with me as a patient advocate in a different hospital system, the legal team at the hospital considered her to be a threat and they asked her to leave the advisory board. And I thought, you have no idea what you're doing. The brilliance, what you have to learn from the people who don't agree with you is astounding. And it is terrifying, I think, <laughs> to oftentimes to the people who are in charge. I want to change that. I want to say we're cultivating the advocates. We're teaching them. We're teaching each other. How do we cultivate the receptacle? For that advocacy and that activism. Because once we are built up, once we are knowledgeable, once we are powerful, we are resisted by the systems that we are desperate to improve. Not to get rid of people's jobs, not to say somebody is right and somebody is wrong, but to partner and make the system better together. But nobody is doing that on the inside. <laughs> so there is nowhere for us to go except back to the group advisory board where they will, if you're lucky, buy you pizza while you give your feedback on whatever problem it is they're having in that moment. I want to summarize a little bit before we move to the final phase of our conversation. And the summary I would make is that you knew what True North looked like. You knew what you wanted for your child. You knew what you wanted for all the other children who were part of that family, who were attending that particular unit. And you kept your eyes fixed on True North. This is where you had to take this team one way or the other. You also knew that there were set plays. And I imagine that the set plays related to what happens when somebody feels threatened and how am I going to respond when they feel threatened? And what action will I take not to make a bad situation worse? And you did that with aplomb. You did this with incredible skill. And that's where you started to make progress. So I'll leave, leave it there and let you comment. 
Is that a fair summation? You knew what True North looked like, and then you were able to navigate all the possible ways in which somebody might feel threatened, and you were able to make them feel safe. I do think that that is a fair summary, and it's certainly what I tried to do. But those skills or strengths that I have are not ones that are traditionally found inside of the healthcare system. And it felt foreign. <laughs> it felt very foreign to folks. As I said earlier, there was there was a lot of tears. <laughs> there was a lot of tears through this all, through this process. And it took years and years and years until I finally decided that I was going to step down because I recognized that as long as my voice was there, others wouldn't be. They saw me as the, the, the mouthpiece, the speaker on behalf of the community, and I needed more of them to become the speaker. And people said, no, 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 no. If you step down now, it's going to fall apart. And I just remember saying, if it falls apart, then it wasn't built properly. Because if I designed a system that works perfectly for me, but nobody else then it's not the perfect system for us. And so we need more of these ideas and we need more of these opinions. I'm happy to say it is still going on. 10 years later, there have been more leaders, more patient advocates that have been cultivated and grew into that, into that position. But it was a slog. It was a trying experience. And I think for anybody that is, that is hearing this, and trying to embrace patience in that way, just take a beat. It's not going to feel good all the time. <laughs> Anything new that you're doing isn't going to feel good all the time. But there is so much opportunity and potential in a successful partnership that I implore you to try to make it work see what you can learn, give it everything you've got. And I believe you can change the system for the better. Erin, where can people find you and what is it that we can do to help support you going forward? Most recently, I decided to start a company called Meanwhile Health. I named it Meanwhile Health because I think that health happens in the meanwhile spaces. I don't go to the hospital to get health. I don't go to the doctor to get health. I go for conversations and for partnership with experts to learn the information that I need. But my health happens when I'm sitting in the school parking lot waiting for pickup and taking a call from a doctor or reordering medication or chatting on the phone with aging family members who need help understanding a diagnosis or a lab result. My purpose with Meanwhile Health is to do what I had stated earlier about cultivating the receptacle for patient advocates, because I have seen too many just off doing their own special magic in the world with this huge opportunity for their work to be amplified through partnership. People just don't know how to do it. It feels scary. <laughs> I, 
I have taken surveys at conferences I've spoken at and asked people about patient partners, patient activism. They want it. They want to do it, but they don't know how. They don't know where to start. They don't know what to do. To that, I would say, listen, listen a little bit more than you ask sometimes. See what it is that your patient is upset about or going on about. Take a moment to understand where it is that they're coming from. Maybe there is a creative solution that you haven't thought of. Maybe there's something happening in the house that has nothing to do with their health, but maybe you've had a similar experience. And so what I want to do is utilize the tools of quality improvement and the foundations and structure of the learning health system to really try to design a better way for these activists to become a part of the system, to become a part of the care teams, as much as a respiratory therapist is a part of the cystic fibrosis care team and a dietitian is a part of a diabetic care team. Where are the patient advocates? Where is the role for us? Not a $7.50 an hour kind of role, not a gift card or an honoraria, but a job where we're respected for that expertise that, that we have, that we are bringing to ask you the hard questions. And I don't just mean doctors and hospitals. I mean, pharmaceutical companies. I mean, you know, digital health startups. I mean, CROs. All of these different organizations have a lot to learn from patients and patient advocates. I was recently at the Civitas Networks for Health conference when we were talking about interoperability. I could beat the interoperability drum all day and night. It is one of my biggest sticking points. And everything that I heard at the conference is about the technology and not about the patient. <laughs> and I thought, this is great and important, but at what point have we designed a big machine that's never going to work for patients? Where is the patient voice in this? What is it that I need to work and to have happen in order to have the best chance at a good health outcome? That doesn't happen by accident. It just doesn't happen by accident. It happens by intention and it happens with design. Aaron, we'll make sure that all the links to all of your work are included in the show notes for this episode. It's been an absolute joy spending time with you. You clearly thought deeply about this. Thank you so much for being part of the Health Design Podcast and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for having me. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com dot com.